listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. We have these scripture journals um, available for everyone. If you don't have one, if you'd like to have one, there's some on the table upstairs in the bookstore and there's some, or at the Connect table or the Next Steps table, and there are some back here at the Next Steps table, and we have plenty in the back room. So if anybody would uh, like a copy of the scripture journal, you can read, you can underline. There are places where you can write. There's uh, nothing, at least for me, that I find more helpful than not only reading but interact with what I'm reading and write things down and jot down questions and how highlight things, and it kind of cements it in my heart and mind. We want y'all to engage with the the gospel of Luke. Uh, We feel like it's extremely important, uh, not only for your mind, but for your soul. And so I would ask you this morning to turn to Luke chapter uh, chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 21 to start with, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And what I want you to grasp from that before we read it here in just a minute is this, that God's plan and hand work in usual and in unusual ways and are completely trustworthy. I think that's the message that Luke is trying to get across to Theophilus. Let let us not forget that uh, the the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, is about uh, Luke, a historian, uh, 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 highly... uh, proficient journalist probably, also a medical doctor, also a very humble man, a godly man, a man that has been transformed by the gospel, has been either commissioned or chosen on his own to write for a man named Theophilus. And so what we have in the gospel of Luke, the entire gospel of Luke, and in the the Acts of the Apostles are Luke's findings as he has done this investigation to try, and you can see it in verse number four, and we really, all the way through the gospel of Luke, don't need to get away from this concept because you you say, what am I supposed to get out of the gospel of Luke? What you need to get out of the gospel of, of Luke is what the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, intended for the readers then to get out of the gospel of Luke. We should be trying to get the same thing out of the gospel of Luke. And if you'll go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, he says that you may have certainty. He's writing to Theophilus, uh, evidently somebody that was important to Luke and probably to, to a lot more people, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he wants them to have certainty. And, and so what Luke is doing is he wants... Uh, Theophilus to be convicted, he wants him to be convinced, he wants him to be assured to the point of salvation, to the point of finding consolation in Christ, to the point of knowing that Christ and Christ alone redeems. And so what he's doing is he's building this convincing case through historical evidence with the goal that the reader would rest his hope in Christ and Christ alone. That's what Luke is trying to do for Theophilus. And when we look at the gospel, that's what we should uh, hope would be accomplished in our own soul. So I think we need to ask ourselves this question before we get into the text today. How is Luke doing up to this point? How is Luke doing at convincing Theophilus? And would you allow the text of Scripture to be equally convincing to you about the nature and the work of Messiah and your need for him as a redeemer? 
And so just let me mention a few things that I just jotted down as I thought about Luke. First of all, um, Luke is a trustworthy writer. He's a man of integrity. He's a man with great research ability and writing ability. And he is, is contemporary to the events that are happening. In other words, he's living in the historical moment that he's writing about. In, in, in other words, anything that you read, anything that you look at, any documentary that you spend time, give your attention to, one of the key points behind all of that is, is the person that's presenting this thing to me a trustworthy person? If you find out they're not, we write them off immediately. What I want to tell you is that we're reading something, and the person that has written it, I believe, based on all of the evidence that we can pull together, this person, Luke, is a trustworthy man, and there is there um, a lot, 28% of the New Testament was written by him. Very little is, is in reference to himself, but we begin to get some shape of what kind of person he is by what he has written. The second thing we have seen is the witness of the Old Testament scriptures. What Luke has done has been to very skillfully bring into the text, even up to this point, the Old Testament scriptures, prophecy that has been given concerning the Messiah. And when you consider prophecy, when you consider it as a baseline for wondering whether or not something is believable, there is nothing that will grip your heart with any greater strength than studying prophecy and looking at its clear fulfillment and the mathematical impossibilities of something being predicted four or five or six or seven or 800 years prior, and now 800 years later, it comes to pass before the very eyes of these people. And so Luke is bringing the Old Testament as a witness to the things that he's writing. Luke is also going to great pains to bring accurate history to us. He's writing about people. He's writing about places. He's writing about circumstances that almost anyone, if they would do a little research or if they lived in that time, would have heard about these things and would say, yes, I know those things happened. I know several people that were there. Maybe I was even there myself. He also has taken us behind the scenes to look at an elderly priest and his barren wife. Uh, no doubt, Zacharias, a historical figure. Uh, Luke's writing gives us essentially the fingerprint of Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph, their, their birth certificate, as it were. The things that he's telling us about them can cause us to trace down who they are and pinpoint them by their location, by their family relations. And so, so Luke is giving us accurate history with real people, real places, and, and real circumstances that are objectively uh, verifiable. Uh, the, the elderly priest and his barren wife, everybody would have known about them. The promise of an extremely unusual conception and birth and life of a son. We heard about John the Baptist, Zacharias, when all of a sudden now he can't speak and he can't hear, but nine months later he can speak and he can hear. Everyone would have known about that, and he tells them about his son that is coming. And so then they see John the Baptist who was born. The angel Gabriel, the supernatural. And some people say, I don't believe in the supernatural. But we sure do love to talk about UFOs and Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and, um, and everything supernatural, don't we? Uh, we believe and love things that are paranormal. And I can't believe, I, I, I would think after one horror movie that that would be the end of it. I can't even stand to watch the commercials, much less sit through an entire movie that drags so much of the paranormal into it. But so many people are smitten by those things today, yet we would write off the fact that there was an angel Gabriel who came not once, not twice, not three times, but four times to four different people to bring a message. We also have 
Uh, Joseph, a man of sterling character and obedience, whose life was about to be wrecked by the plan of God, but he was so certain it was the plan of God that he chose it anyway. You say, how was his life wrecked? He finds out that his wife is expecting, and all of a sudden her excuse is she's expecting of the Holy Spirit. What more far-fetched story could you ever hear about how somebody had conceived, but an angel of the Lord comes to him and tells him that the thing that is conceived in her is of the Lord, and Joseph has to trust God. Could there be somebody with any more integrity to say that I'm staying in this thing, and everybody is going to know, and everybody can count dates, and everybody's going to imagine and wonder and think that Mary was unfaithful, but he married her anyway when he should have put her away. All of these things are running through their mind and Luke is taking the time to write about these people. We see Mary, a young devout virgin, highly favored by God, yet the favoring of God completely wrecked her life. Completely wrecked her life. Her reputation was ruined for the totality of her life. And not only that, but she had to go through these gradual uh, situations. We're going to look at one today where she is separated from her son uh, at a very early stage in his life. He's 12 years old in the temple. They walk in, son, what have you done? He's like, what are you talking about? What have I done? I must be about my father's business or I must be in my father's house, he said. And you see this separation throughout their life up to the point that her son goes and he is crucified. Thank God she saw him resurrected and she understood that it was all worth it. But we get this insight into Mary. And then there are these songs that are sung over and over again, songs that perhaps permeated the culture, songs that were memorable, songs that Theophilus could look back to and identify, songs that were reflective of something that God had done in the hearts and lives of these people and they could not contain it and it had to flow out of their soul. These things that we're looking at took place in the temple, the the place of the people of God, a holy place where we would hope that people operating in those realms would um, would be trustworthy and Luke takes us there. We see uh, the humility of the writing. If I were writing a tale, I would definitely sensationalize it. And Luke doesn't do anything to sensationalize, for example, the birth of our Lord, the simplicity of it, the humility of it. Mary and Joseph bringing the Son of God, and they're not able to bring the the full offering, but a more simple offering for, um, for poor people. And then the clear revelation of God, the Savior is born to unlikely recipients who then take the good news and share it everywhere they go. Luke has laid a foundation for us to say, if this isn't true, that surely somebody would have come forward and said, it it wasn't. If this wasn't true, or if I was concerned about whether or not it was true, I've got enough evidence that I can go back historically, and I can go back geographically, and I can go back to this city, and I can do my research, and I can undermine it. But Luke has laid it out in such a way that it is absolutely and completely verifiable. And then we come to verse 21 in the text this morning. Jesus has been born. It has been announced to the angels. And in chapter 2 and verse number 21, Jesus on the eighth day is being taken into the temple. It says, verse 21, And at the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22, and when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according 
to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. He moves to another thought now, another block of thought, same place, same time. He moves from the, the purification of Mary and the presentation of Jesus. In verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Notice the detail that he goes to to identify, to, to identify Simeon. Anyone at that, alive at that particular time in the Jewish community would have known who Simeon was. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Further description, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Further description, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in, brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, I, I don't know what Simeon did previously. I don't know if he just happened to meet every parent with every child. They were probably going into the, the women's court in the temple because it was the time of Mary's, uh, after Mary's purification, uh, seven days and then 33 days, so it would have been 40 days. And Simeon, I don't know if he went up and greeted or looked at every child and said, no, that's not him, no, that's not him, no, that's not him. And then all of a sudden he sees Jesus and the spirit that is with him tells him that this is Jesus. But then he takes Jesus up in his arms and he, he sings this, this song he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. They continued to, be, to marvel, to, to be uh, astonished by what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Verse 36, we move from Simeon to Anna, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. Okay, so who is Anna? We're going to narrow it down very specifically. This is not haphazard. He's not just, just you know, throwing spitballs at the wall, hoping he hits something. He wants you to know these are very specific people in very specific circumstances, and it adds to the validity and the truthfulness of the, of the message that he is sharing. She's of the, of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband for seven years when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So either she's 84 or probably in excess of 100, but she is well advanced in years. She did not, not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and with prayer night and day. So here's a, a very unusual person, not departing from the temple, worshiping with prayer night and day. She's of the tribe of Asher. She gives her family name. We understand 
understand that she's a widow. We understand that, that her name is Anna. Her name uh, and all the things about her are shared here so that the reader can say, these are real people. These are godly people. These aren't crazy people. These are people that love the Lord. These are people that are the remnant of God that are looking for and expecting Messiah to come. They're not immersing themselves in the world, but they, they, they're immersing themselves in God and, and His Spirit and His power and His Word. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption in Jerusalem. So there was a group of people that, that believed in uh, Messiah who was coming and they were anticipating Him. Not a lot of people like in our world. But he shows us Anna. And then verse 39, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, these were devout people, they returned into Galilee, and some other things happened if you read the other synoptic gospels. To their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom, and when the feast was ended, they were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 47 and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding of his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There are three things that I want to point out in the text to you this morning. And hopefully it will be in keeping with what's in the text and in keeping with, with what um, Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus. We need to get what Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus. Maybe you don't struggle with belief today. Maybe nobody needs to convince you. But maybe you need to go through some pains to convince somebody else. Maybe there's somebody that you know that doesn't believe, that needs the evidence of Scripture, that needs more than just, I just believe because I, be I believe. Um, and, and so Luke is laying that out. The first thing we see is the, is the purification. And the, the point of the purification is to show the reader that that. Mary and Joseph are devout, law-abiding Jewish people that are carefulness and meticulous in their obedience to the law. They are trustworthy. They are people of integrity. And we see in verse number 21 the, the circumcision of, of Jesus. And, and we understand by looking at the rest of Scripture that circumcision indicates several things for us. First of all, it indicates to us that we are sinners who have received our sin nature from our fathers and passed it on to our children. And I really don't feel comfortable going into a lot of details, graphic details about circumcision, okay? 
um, maybe we can have a, a men's meeting and a women's meeting and a children's meeting, and we can have those conversations. But, but uh, essentially, um, it was a, rem- a move, removal of a part of uh, the flesh on uh, a male, and that removal of that flesh indicated, first of all, when that flesh is not removed, that is symbolic of this person's sin nature that has been passed down from his father through procreation to his children through procreation. In, in keeping with Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, uh, uh, our sin was passed to us from our father and passed to our fathers from Adam and passed to our children. Sin is passed from one generation to the next. Circumcision recognizes that sin, but it also recognizing, recognizes that God has a, has a plan for saving us from sin. We see it in Genesis 3. 15, where uh, the, the seed of Mary crushes the head of the serpent in the promise of a Messiah who's going to come. But we see circumcision laid out for us in Genesis chapter 17 and verse number 9, where God establishes a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of the covenant was circumcision. If you were in agreement with the covenant, you were circumcised, and you circumcised your male children. It was a sign of salvation that comes only through faith. The symbol didn't save. Circumcision didn't save, but it was indicative of a faith that we were placing in a Redeemer who was to come. Let us be careful to say in the moment that that circumcision does not confer salvation. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. Uh, Romans is clear that Abraham was saved by grace through faith. So it wasn't the circumcision that was salvific. It was symbolic of those who were circumcised, and it should have been literal for those who were circumcised that they were cut off from the world to be the covenant people of God. It also was indicative of the fact that those who are set apart to be the covenant people of God are also sent out to proclaim good news of salvation to a lost world. It's a sign of having sin removed. It points to the one who was promised, the Redeemer, who would by his own life and death save all who would trust him. Let me say quickly this about symbols. We see them everywhere. We have them in the church. We see them in Scripture. We see people wearing crosses on their ear or crosses around their neck or crosses everywhere. And a lot of times there's the thought, if I've got this symbol, we do symbols with our hands. There are symbols in so many religious practices. In Scripture, symbols or signs are never intended to be salvific. They're never intended to save In fact, I would go so far as to say that the symbols are not there for God. I don't think God is looking at somebody engaging in a symbol saying, or a sign saying, wow, I'm glad you did that. I feel better about you now. I think it's more for those who are participating or who are believing when we have this physical symbol that accompanies that. We're going to take juice this morning. We're going to take bread this morning. That is not really the blood of Christ. That is not really the body of Christ, but they represent that. But something happens when we experience it tangibly in our hearts. And so let us be clear. Um, 
If symbols are not the result of inward faith, a heart that is trusting in the finished work of Christ, it in no way confers salvation or blessing apart from faith. And it points to our need for a new heart and the hope of a new heart found in Christ and Christ alone. And they took our Lord and he was circumcised. Now, he was not a sinner, but he fulfilled the law. This was a requirement of the law. And Jesus is fulfilling the law by getting circumcised. He fulfilled it perfectly, perfectly righteous so he could give us his righteousness. So he could be the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God slain before the salvation of the world. So Jesus' circumcision. And I don't think Luke's point was for us to even, maybe the readers probably understood that a lot better than, than I do. Um, I don't think Luke's point is for us to go into um, an exposition on that point, but I didn't want to pass it this morning because it's something that's very uncommon to most of us. And so we see the circumcision of Jesus. But then we see the purification. And the time of purification, again, like circumcision, is a reminder that we are sinful people separated from a holy God. Mary has had a child, so she has to go through a seven-day purification period and then an additional 33-day purification period if it is the birth of a son. It's a reminder that she is unclean. She can't come into a holy place that represents the presence of God apart from this cleansing period of time that takes place. We are dirty. We are sinful. We cannot come into the presence of a holy God in our uncleanness. Something has to happen to purify us, and they're bringing these offerings as temporary sacrifices, looking forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see Jesus having an offering made for him. What is the offering? What is the gift? What is the uh, the resources that are given on his behalf to the priest. Every firstborn child had to be consecrated and dedicated to the Lord, but it was the tribe of Levi and their children where they were born, and they were dedicated to serve in the temple. But all the other tribes, their children, their firstborn, had to give an offering as opposed to going and serving in the priesthood. And a lot of things were connected to that, but we see that here in the text this morning. But the text is telling us about uh, the purification, verses 21 to 24. But then we come to Simeon and Anna, verses 25 to 40, and we see uh, this prophetic affirmation. And I want to talk about Simeon for a second. I want to talk about um, Anna for a second from uh, the text. Uh, the first thing I want you to see is, is, uh, is what the text tells us about Simeon. And let me just project a couple of things that are not directly in the text, but we can draw from the text. I believe that Simeon, um, the context for Simeon is this, that for spiritually minded people, he understood just how dire the circumstances in his culture really were. This is, this is Simeon. He, he's a man that's, that's coming to the temple. He's a man that understands what's happening spiritually. He's a man who understands what's happening religiously. He's a man who understands what's happening culturally. He knows spiritually that they haven't heard a word from a prophet in 400 years. They have not heard a prophetic word from God in 400 years. And for the people of God, for the true people of God, the word of God is extremely important. God communicating to them, God leading them, God guiding them through his word. Simeon also understood right there beneath his nose as he spent so much time in the temple and he was filled with the Holy Spirit that the, the, the legalist 
Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees were constantly going at it. He knew there was not a spiritual bone in most of them's body, but they were the leaders in Israel. They were either legalists who wanted to put these weights on people to say you've got to perform in certain ways to be spiritual, or they were liberal. He also knew that there were cruel political leaders, and there was no hope in sight. These were dreadful times. These were dark times. And I think if we say that we're spiritual, we can't just float along, isolate ourselves, and act like nothing's going on around us just so our check's coming in and we can do what we want to do. We're in dire times. Godly men are deeply concerned in dire times. Godly men move toward greater godliness in dire times. The times around us should awaken us to say, man, I want to pursue the Lord. I want to find out what God's doing. I want to get closer to Him. I want to put my hope in Him. Simeon was that kind of man. He was righteous. And he was righteous like Abraham was righteous. By faith in a promised Redeemer. The righteousness of Christ was imputed to Simeon by his faith in the Redeemer that he was looking for. So the text tells us that he was righteous. Secondly, he was devout. He was serious about God. He was serious about God. And you're really not serious about God until how you, how, how you live changes. So here he is every day. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's going to the temple every day, looking for Jesus to come to be born. It changed how he lived his life practically. He was devout. He was expectant. I don't know if he wanted to die. It sounds like he did. I don't know how old he was. It sounds like he was pretty old. It's probably been years that he's gotten this promise years and years and years ago, you will not see death until you see Messiah. And probably, you know, when he was like 35 to 40, he's like, this is cool, all right, no problem, 40, 45 to 55, 45 to 65. But then when he gets to be about 75 or 80, he's walking into the temple saying, I sure do wish he would hurry up and get here. Right? Is this, is this the Messiah? Oh, Lord, please. I don't know if I can make it 10 more years, right? I mean, he's just probably exhausted, hoping, ready to go, ready to leave this world. And the, the text tells us the Spirit was on him. The, the text tells us about the Spirit a lot. The Spirit's just working and all of this stuff. Doing things that can only be attributed to God. How did that happen? I don't know. The Spirit of God obviously did it. But there was something about Simeon that caused people around him because I don't hear Simeon saying, the Spirit's on me. I don't see him doing that. I see people saying, ah, that guy's got the Spirit on him. And it's confirmed with this inspired text. We see not only the man, but we see this meeting that takes place. And like I said, it was this providential intersection in the women's court. And the text would indicate that they both showed up at the same time. And then there is this message that Simeon lays out for us. Verse 29, he says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You say, why would he, why would he say that? He's not making it about himself. He's just so certain beyond a shadow of a doubt that by the Spirit of God, this devout man has laid 
finally laid his eyes on the promised Redeemer that he knew he would see before he died. It's an affirmation of the Messiah being right there in his arms. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Messiah is coming to save us from our sin that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. He's saying this. This is not a secret. This is before the eyes of all that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. The Redeemer of all humanity. The Redeemer of all who would trust him. This had to be shocking for a Jewish audience as he was standing there in the temple. Messiah was coming for them. Messiah was coming to defeat Rome. Messiah was coming to destroy their enemies. Messiah was coming to exalt the nation of Israel. And he's like, no, that's not what's happening. This Messiah that I'm holding in my arms, this Redeemer that I'm holding in my arms, this consolation that I'm holding in my arms is going to be the one who is for all people, not unlike what we read in Genesis 12 and Abram and the promise that comes to him about out of his loins will come this blessing to all the nations and this blessing has arrived that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles, a people who have received no revelation. The Jewish people had the revelation of God. They had the the word of God. God had revealed himself to them so that he could reveal himself through them. And he is now doing that in spite of how it seems like the nation of Israel and the Jewish people had uh, not completely, but in a large way, officially messed it up. But he's saying now he is a light for the revelation of the Gentiles, for the glory to your people, Israel. Christ being born, being the Savior, being the sin offering, being the Redeemer, being the Messiah, is now bringing great glory to God. And it is the glory that God intended for his people, Israel, because he is going to bring Messiah through them. And this is being accomplished right before his eyes. So We're seeing all all of biblical revelation now just coming down into this one place and is falling right here with the birth of the Messiah. A light for people who are in darkness. Apart from Christ, we are in darkness. And he's saying, now we're going to feel the glory of God on these people that Messiah has come through. This is the means that God intended to glorify them. And then he not only has this blessing, but... It says he blessed God in verse 28, but he's also got this warning. After his father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Jesus will be lifted up for those who believe in him. He said, If I even if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Double meaning and glorification and crucifixion. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, there will be those who will be drawn to me and be lifted up when they believe in me. But he is also a a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are going to be those that hear that they can't save themselves. There are going to be those that hear that their good works can't save them. There are going to be those that hear that their rituals can't save them. And those that hear that and that are trusting in something other than Christ, there are going to be those that look at this man who was born to these, uh, I don't know if they were peasants or not, but they definitely were unlikely people to bring Messiah into the world. And then you go to Bethlehem. Where was he born? Right, well, over here. Where did they lay him? Over here where the, the, the cows are now eating 
out of? What kind of life did he live? Who announced him? Some weird guy that should have been institutionalized in an insane asylum, walking out with this, this camel's hair and eating locust and wild honey and needed a, a manicure and a shave. And he's crazy. And I'm supposed to believe in a guy like that to depend on this guy to get me into heaven? And uh, I'm telling you, folks wa walking around in robes and, 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 and conehead hats just, just aren't going to believe in that. They need something that's, that's fancier, that's, that's, you know, gives, gives them some sense of importance. And Jesus isn't going to give that to us. He's not coming to appeal to our pride. He's coming to convict us of our sin. He's coming to be our redeemer. He's coming to show us the love of the Father. And until we come to grips with who we are, we're not going to understand who he is. There are going to be those who will not come to grips with who they are in their sin, and they're going to be appointed for the fall. And then there are those who are going to believe and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also and some commentators said that it was probably a picture of Mary having to sit and watch a, a sword pierced through her side but no uh, her son's side on the cross no doubt her watching her son suffer and be beaten and die most of us as parents can't stand for our kids to skin their knee or have somebody hurt their feelings Right? We're very protective. I can't imagine what Mary was going to go through, but Simeon is telling her this so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And then we see Anna, and we see her biography. He, I mean, he is good as, as gives us her fingerprint, her eye scan, her social security number, and uh, a, a Google Earth picture of her address. I mean, he lays it out, gives us all the details uh, about her, this godly, godly woman. And she speaks to a faithful remnant who were waiting, who were anticipating the consolation of Israel. That ought to speak to our hearts and ask calls us to ask ourselves, are we waiting for the consolation as we live in the world today? And then we come to verses 41 to 52. And, and um, the, the main point of verses 41 to 52, and what's, what's happened is they've gone to Jerusalem for Passover. Uh, it's a, a week-long event. Passover is, is a celebration of, of God's people uh, from Egyptian bondage, right? When um, Moses is like, let my people go. And finally, after 10 plagues, he lets his people go. But before he lets his people go, they take the, the blood, which was a sign of the death of an animal, a substitute in the place of the family. The death, death angel comes over. Wherever he sees the blood, he passes over. He passes over because something has temporarily paid for the sin of those people looking forward to the permanent payment that Christ would pay on the cross of Calvary. They're going to celebrate the Passover to be reminded of their freedom from Egypt, Egyptian bondage and also to be able to look forward to the freedom that would be theirs 
when they understood who Jesus Christ was. But they've gone, these devout people, these godly people, these people that want to dot every I and cross every two who have this heart for the Lord are taking their son up there. He's 12 years old. They're, they're probably going with a caravan. They're probably going with family members. They may be going because the next year is going to be the, the bar mitzvah of Jesus where um, male children become sons of the law, become accountable to the law. That's what a bar mitzvah is. And so they're going to show him around Jerusalem, explain things to him about that before they bring him for his 13th year to his bar mitzvah. Uh, they get there, and what you have in these crowds are the women and the children up front, the men in the back, and uh, they're going back home to Nazareth after this week of the Passover celebration, and Joseph thinks that Jesus is with Mary, and Mary thinks that Jesus is with Joseph, or they think he's somewhere playing with the kids, and they get a day's journey away, and they recognize he's not there. They begin to look everywhere. They go back to Jerusalem. They can't find him anywhere. They look for him a day. They go into the temple and find him sitting there, and the point of all of that is, is this. Jesus made this statement, and most commentators say this is the crux of the text. And he says something that finally takes all that we're learning with all these pieces that are being put together by Luke to, to convince Theophilus and to convince us of the deity of Jesus Christ. He finally has this statement that this 12-year-old makes. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First time anybody said anything like that. Abraham didn't say anything like that. Moses didn't say anything like that. David didn't say anything like that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, at 12 years old, makes a proclamation of his own deity. He's saying, I have a relationship with God the Father. I am the Son of the Father. I am the Son of of God. I don't think that the learned teachers who were there probably wrote it off as maybe, uh, well, probably not as a Freudian slip. Freudian came along a couple of thousand years later. But they probably wrote it off as maybe he didn't know what he was talking about. I'm not sure exactly what happened. But the point of the text is this, that Jesus Christ is identified as the Son of God. He has a very unique relationship with the Father that no one has ever had. So we look at the text for a few minutes, but let me ask you uh, a few questions or ask you to consider some things um, by way of application this morning. First of all, um, every one of us in this room and everybody that you pass by on this planet is a sinner. We are all sinners. We, we can't let that reality escape us as we consider the text this morning. As we go from... Uh, from circumcision to uh, this son being carried into the temple and being recognized as consolation where there is no consolation, as being recognized as redeemer to a sinful people who need to be redeemed. We can't, we can't overlook the fact that we are sinners and need someone else to save us. Ceremonies will not save us. Ritual will not, will not save us. Customs will not save us. Symbols will not save us. None of them were designated to save. None of them are capable of saving. And at best, they point to the only one who can save. And at worst, they distract us from the very person that they point to and become a magical relic that we manipulate for our good. So let us be careful. I, I don't think any of us here 
looks to a relic to save them, but it's easy to. It's easy to look to something magical to help me hit a home run or score a touchdown. Why is everybody pointing up? Is, do they think if they don't point up, do they think if they don't cross, make the sign of the cross when they come to bat, um, that they're not going to perform as well? I'm not sure. Maybe it's, maybe it's indicative of genuine faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But, but let us look to these things in the text and let them point us to a Savior, but let them point to us as a people who need saving. Let them point us to a Savior, but let them point us let them point to us as a people who need saving. Secondly, clearly from the text, Jesus Christ alone can save. We are sinners and we need someone to save us. Jesus Christ alone can save. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ, if when we read Revelation 5, was standing as a lamb who had been slain. He was one who had everything thrown at him that should have killed him and kept him dead. But he's standing. He defeated death. He conquered sin. Christ and Christ alone is the only Redeemer and the only Consoler. Consolation and comfort can only be found in Christ. The lie of Satan and the lie of sin is that it brings consolation. I, I love, uh, well, I don't love Amazon, but I'm like you. I just, I just... I like it when there's another box on the porch. I'm expecting one a day, and it's usually books. I love books. And I've got books, and I'm just stacking them up, and I'm going to get to read them one day. That's some form of consolation. I'm, uh, when I don't have anything coming, I'm thinking, what am I expecting? Nothing. That feels good when you've hit the button, and you've got an order coming, and it's waiting on the porch, and it's so exciting. Does anybody like to open the boxes? You know what's in them, but it's just, it's just good to see what's in them because, because those things console us. Believe it or not, but our, our addictions console us. They give us some promise of consolation. The things that we run to when we're stressed, they console us. But here's what I want you to know this morning. Your soul was designed to only be consoled by Christ and Christ alone. And, and the point of the text is there is this one who is the consoler and he alone consoles and he alone saves and he alone redeems. Consolation and comfort can only be found in Christ and Christ alone no matter what you're going through in this life. Thirdly, how is your life being practically transformed by the hope of the gospel? Here's, here's Simeon hoping in the gospel, and it changed everything about his life. It changed everything about his life, so much so that he was not like everybody else. It's like this weird guy, Simeon, all he thinks about, all he talks about, all he's looking for. For all these years, it looks like he would give up. He keeps pulling back that baby blanket and lifting off that toboggan saying, is this the Redeemer? Is this the Savior? Is this the Messiah? Is this the promised one? He was obsessed. He was obsessed with finding Christ, with seeing Christ. How is your life being practically transformed by the hope of the gospel? 
Is it just something we talk about? Is it just something we argue about? Is it just something we think about? Is it just something that we've compartmentalized for particular periods of time, particular days of the week? Is it our 15-minute quiet time? Is it our prayer on the way to work? And I'm thankful for all of those things. But the hope of a Redeemer should radically transform our heart and life. Fourthly, can other people see the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? Can other people see the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life? I don't know what else to say about that. Except that's really convicting for me. I'm not sure everybody can always see the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I'm not sure the people that are closest to me can see the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. But here's Simeon and here's Anna. They're filled with the Spirit. Everybody knows it and they're not talking about it themselves. They're not talking about the Holy Spirit. But there's this obvious presence of the Holy Spirit in their life. And by the way, in this era, in this period of time, the Holy Spirit had not come to dwell inside of people, at least based on my understanding of Scripture. When the day of Pentecost, there was a new relationship that was established or a deeper relationship that was established when the Spirit came to dwell inside of people, but the Holy Spirit was with them. How much more should the Holy Spirit be obvious in your life and my life? even in Simeon's life. Because we are now the temple of the living God. He is living and he is dwelling in you and in me. And believe it or not, if you go to Galatians 5, you can see the fruit of the Spirit. And if the Spirit is in there, read through the list, the fruit of the Spirit. Some of you have memorized it. Some of you have your kids memorize it. Look at that list. And, and what should be happening in my life and in your life, if the Spirit is in me, is that love and joy and peace. And we go all the way through the entire list. And these things should be flowing out of me toward those around me in very tangible ways. And people should be experiencing them in, quite frankly, supernatural ways. To feel the love of Christ through someone is very supernatural. And it should transform how we live in community when there's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, finally, are you struggling with doubt? Are you struggling with doubt? Are you struggling with trusting the Scriptures and the Gospel? Now, if you are, the first question I would ask is this, what are you trusting? Because everybody's trusting something. Sometimes we think it's intellectual to not trust Scripture. But what are you trusting? Some folks would say, well, I'm trusting science. <laughs> what in the world is science? Everything is scientific. When you say science, do you mean evolution? When you say science, do you mean conception? What do you mean by science? You're trusting science. Interesting book that I've read recently said that everything that has been brought in contemporary society front and center in our face that has convinced us to accept it has been placed in a scientific idiom. In other words, it might not have been a scientific reality, but it was placed in scientific language. And then all of a sudden now somebody says, this is science, therefore you can't deny it. Which by the way, I've got to be honest with you and tell you just how ignorant I am. I believe that Scripture has authority over science. That's just, where I, that's just where I land. I'm not ashamed of it. 
I'm not going to try to prove it to you. I'm not going to try to apologize for it. I would, I would trust Scripture before I would trust something that is scientific. But if you're a, science, a true scientist, I'm not trying to deny science because I, I believe that there are things that are scientific, Scripture speaks to, that are absolutely and completely accurate. But if I find something that is science or pseudoscience that is contradictory to Scripture, I'm going to let Scripture be the authority over the thing that it's scientific. A lot of things are said in the name of science. Are you trusting science? What are you trusting? Are you trusting the supernatural? And that has captured the hearts of many. We look at the news feeds and all of a sudden they're going to unpack all of the secret documents on UFOs because there's a bright light on a radar screen somewhere. And all of a sudden now this is a UFO. On and on we could go, what are you trusting? Are you trusting uh, Muhammad? Are you trusting Allah, the moon God? Are you trusting history? Are you trusting yourself? What are you trusting? And the bottom line is this. Most of the time in the culture that we live in today, the reason we don't want to believe this is because it places too many restrictions on the me. On my desires. On my individualism. Let me just say this as I, as I close. Who or what you don't trust, listen carefully, because here's, here's the thing. I'll tell you what, I just don't trust anybody. I just don't trust, somebody will say this, I don't trust anybody, man. You can't trust anybody. Who or what you don't trust says more about you than it does about who or what you don't trust. Who or what you don't trust says more about you than it does about who or what you don't trust. Do you understand that? So we, 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 say, we say, well, I, I'm a, I'm a, I don't trust anybody. That immediately puts you above everybody. Number one. Number two, it says one of two things. Either you know you're not trustworthy, therefore nobody else is, or you are amazingly trustworthy and superior to everybody, and nobody else is trustworthy. It's not really a good statement to make. It's not a good statement to make. So if you say, oh, I, just, I just don't trust any of this, who or what you don't trust says more about you than the person or thing you don't trust. And, and, and I'll say this as well as I close. People who refuse to trust will find a reason not to. If you walk in and you see me and I don't know what, maybe it's, maybe it's these worn out shoes I've got on. You say, I just don't trust that guy. I, I, I knew a guy one time that had a haircut like that and he robbed a bank. Therefore, you can't trust people with haircuts like that. Right? If, if you decide that you can't trust somebody, whether you have a reason to or not, you will ultimately find a reason. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. This is trustworthy. This is trustworthy. It is proven trustworthy for centuries. It is proven trustworthy for centuries. And I would beg you this morning to place your faith and your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ. You and I are sinners, hopelessly dead in our trespasses and sins. And apart from our trust in Christ who came and lived and died and rose from the grave, 
And unless we trust him, and he is trustworthy, he is trustworthy, then you will spend eternity in hell. And so I plead with you this morning to trust him. God's plan and hand work in unusual ways and are completely trustworthy. I, I told you all about my buddy, Aaron. And Aaron um, has four kids still at home and walked in and his wife was unconscious. And she died. And I called him. He's a pastor um, of a small church in my hometown. I called him and I said, Aaron, when y'all met together, they met together last Sunday night. I said, what'd you do? He said, I told him we were going to try to sing it as well. <laughs> and if we couldn't sing it, we'd just say it. And he said, that's what we did. So here's a man lost his beautiful, amazing wife. I know, knew his wife, Amy, amazing. Tr tremendous mother. You, you wouldn't find a, a better wife, a better mother, a, a, a better person. She was 95% of Aaron and Amy. And he would say, God took her. He would say, God is sovereign. And he would say, I trust him. I trust him. Not because he thinks he's going to be punished if he doesn't say, I trust him. But because he's considered the evidence. And I don't know anybody on this planet that's considered the evidence more than my buddy Aaron has. And he's concluded that no matter what happens, God is trustworthy. He works in usual and unusual ways. His plan and his hand are always at work. And he is completely trustworthy.